You have 24 minutes, the podcast from 24 Hour Nation. My name is Randall White. Police departments in cities large and small can learn a great deal from Iowa City, Iowa. That's right. In this episode of 24 Minutes, we discuss four strategies with Colin Fowler, downtown liaison officer for the Iowa City Police Department. Learn how he is helping to create a safer downtown district through effective relationships, accessibility, providing businesses what they say they need, and solving panhandling by solving homelessness. Here are 24 Minutes with Officer Colin Fowler. The downtown district is a SMID. SMID means... A self-supported municipal improvement district. All right. So, and I'm not an expert on this, and uh, Joe Riley knows more than I do, but basically they um, assess something similar to the tax for downtown businesses, the okay. tune of like less than 1%, I think. They do things like they just had an art installation over the holidays that came from Australia that was put downtown. They put up holiday lights. They do all the great stuff. They put banners on all the, the city light poles. So they do a great deal to attract everybody to the downtown for the greater good. Things that businesses probably wouldn't do if left to pay for it themselves. So, and that's how my position is part of that. They want to have a dedicated officer downtown all the time. So when there are problems, they can go direct with me and not have to reinvent the wheel every time with a new officer every day. I see. And uh, in the city of Iowa City, I was just for the purposes of people who were listening Population of Iowa City is about 77,000. It's a large, very strong personality university town. That sounds, yeah, it's very much different than the rest of Iowa. Um, It is not, (laughs) it's completely different than the rest of Iowa in what I would say a a good way. It's uh, very much a college town. It's very liberal. Iowa recently became a red state, but Iowa City is definitely not red. Yeah, there's, there's one in every state. The, uh, <laughs> exactly. the, for points of reference, the uh, thing I wanted to point out here is that the nighttime economy and nighttime governments is happening in cities of all sizes, and Iowa City's uh, taking a leadership role. We referenced Joe Riley. He's the night mayor, if you will, of yep. Iowa City and um, works for that downtown uh, district. Is the downtown district the scene for the university students? It is. It's very much the place to be. It's a small footprint. It's just a few blocks that has great restaurants, great tons of great places to hang out. Anyone who's come here will tell you that the bar scene is vibrant. It's, it's a really significant part of the economy. It, it, no, Iowa City is a lovely, uh, lovely place. I have visited and I've enjoyed um, oh, great. Uh, walking around the district. So tell us a little bit about the Iowa City Police Department and its community policing program. This has got to be a stance that the police department has taken saying, and I know that many cities have community policing programs, but how how is it perceived in Iowa City? Well, every officer in Iowa City is expected to have a community relations or a community policing relationship in their own area. So we have four districts basically in the city. And so officers get assigned to the same area every day with the idea that they'll get to know everybody in that area, which is sometimes difficult when you're going from call to call to call. So the the department itself has a community outreach, a community policing feel to it. So everyone's trained in that to a degree. Then we had a separate community outreach division, five officers that went away during around 2020 since we were so short on staffing. 
of those original five, I'm the only one to come back. Uh, we had neighborhood resource officers, two of those uh, that would go respond anywhere in the city where there was a problem with neighbors and negotiate outcomes, immediate conflicts um, in a way that a patrol officer probably couldn't do because they're responding to other calls. I'm the only one to, re only one to return from that division that's really tasked with community outreach. We have hired two civilians under the umbrella of community outreach, but they're not certified officers, but they're, they're doing a great job backfill the absence of police officers. And you're, are you primarily on a bike? I am primarily, I, primarily on a bike. I will tell you this, I kind of chickened out this winter. Um, I got a car a it lot. It got a little cold. It got cold and I've had enough. I have two bicycles. I have one specifically for winter. It's a salsa muckluck fat tire. And I didn't, I think I got on it once this winter, but I've resolved or resigned myself to do better next winter. I just didn't want to get out in the cold this winter. I don't know what it was. <laughs> it happens. It happens, particularly, I think, with the winter we've had this year. So do, do you know, do other university towns, I, and I, I use the word with love. I love university towns and college towns. Do other university towns or cities that are smaller um, in the states, are you aware, do they have the same kind of uh, community policing program initiatives? I don't know the answer to that. There's two more state universities in Iowa, Iowa State and UNI, and I don't know if they're both significantly smaller than University of Iowa. I don't know how much they have in that area. I'm sure they have some. I think most cities, even now, are really shorthanded still. I'm, I'm right. also a union president. So because of that, I get a lot of communication about union issues. And all across the country, police departments are short. And I'm talking like 30% short. Right. Uh, so a lot of that outreach stuff is, and that's the first thing to go, unfortunately. I have a really unique perspective on that because I see all of this communication because of my union status. Almost everybody is short. We're, we're only five officers short now and our authorized strength is 84. Okay. So we're doing better than most. We should have more officers when you look at the state and national averages of officers per capita. But one thing that has been an unforeseen benefit of the shortage is just like any market, our price has gone up. So officers, I've been an officer for 27 years. Officers are getting paid five, $10,000, even more in big cities just to transfer. So there's really become a shell game of moving officers around. And officers are able for the first time to shop for employers. And that's mm. something that never used to happen. If you can look around and go to a neighboring city and get, you know, $10,000 bonus just to show up. The cities that defunded really significantly are now like big cities like Seattle and Portland. Some of those are offering $30,000 to get officers. Um, so it does an unforeseen thing. We usually negotiate for, you know, about a 3% increase in pay every year. When we do the contract negotiations, people are getting eight, 10% raises now because they need to attract officers. So I never would have told, I never would have predicted that we would get paid more and get bonuses to sign on because of the shortage, but that's been a real thing. It seems to me that the social climate about policing as a role has kind of calmed down to a lot of the animosity that existed yes. perhaps. Uh, so the pendulum has swung back to center, I would say on that. Good. It was, yeah. Everything needs to swing back to center. <laughs> right. <laughs> so to tell us a little bit about your downtown liaison role. There's a lot of excitement when you came back into this position, uh, just from the news coverage and the chatter. You told us about how it's funded, but tell us specifically how you foster relationships with businesses and, and uh, patrons through the kind of 
programs that uh, that you manage? One of the, the key things is to be accessible. That's a little tougher in the winter, but now that it's getting warmer, you want to be on foot or on bike as much as you can. And people come up and say, you know, it's just great to see you outside of a car. It's so much easier to strike up a conversation with someone when you're not, you don't have windows. Uh, the bicycle is excellent for that. It helps with that. So you can just have all these, you know, genuine organic conversations that wouldn't occur if you were inside a car. So that's the first thing. And when you spend time downtown all the time, you get to know everybody. You get to know the homeless folks, you get to know the business owners. And when you have that rapport and they see you acting in a certain way, which I'm a pretty outside the box law enforcement officer. I try to not arrest people unless they really have to go to jail. Uh, we're lucky enough here to have some options to jail that I'm, I take advantage of. In fact, this week I'll be part of my first restorative justice circle. Okay. Uh, for some students that the aforementioned art installation downtown. Yes, the rabbits. Yeah, someone stole Bertha the rabbit. And uh, <laughs> we found out who that was. And um, and this was the, the victims of the crime get to direct this. And they've opted to go with the restorative justice. And that's just a, a really good example of trying to do things besides arrest everybody. And when you, when you treat people that way all the time, they're more likely to come and talk to you. Uh, they'll even ask for me by name, They're like, you know, can Officer Fowler come deal with us? So that's one of the things is just being consistent in how you treat people all the time, having those relationships. Then when, when there is trouble, they're more likely to call you. I have a city-issued cell phone, which is kind of an albatross. <laughs> but I keep it with me when I'm working. And on my business card, it has that cell phone. number. So when a business owner or someone downtown or any stakeholder in the district wants help from the police department, they can call me directly without having to go through a dispatcher and maybe roll the dice with who you get on patrol. Not that patrol is bad, but patrol are usually looking at a screen full of calls they need to get to. So they're often going to choose the most expeditious resolution. I'm allowed to have the latitude to take the time to make a different decision. There were some, I used to get teased a little bit because my coworkers would call us the sock police, Dave, Dave, the officer before and I, because we would carry socks in our bicycle bag. In the winter, when you're talking to homeless people, it's re- foot care is really important to them because they're wearing boots all the time. So having a fresh pair of socks was a big deal. I've even been called on the radio from other officers, hey, can you bring some socks to this guy? So that's one of the things that for the homeless outreach aspect of that. What caught my eye and what made me want to speak with you was the violent intruder training. Now, first yeah. of all, the terminology made more sense to me than the redundant active shooter training. Isn't isn't every shooter active? But, <laughs> every, but I don't know. Is there an inactive I, shooter? There are. Are there? I don't know. But anyway, violent intruder training made so much more sense. Talk to me about that. Is that some? Is that an initiative of the police department in the bars and restaurants in the downtown district? When I started, I in made this train. And if I had known that people were going to pay attention to it, I would have paid more attention to the name <laughs> because I thought almost nothing. That just seemed the right name for me. We're talking about a violent intruder. Exactly. Yeah. So I should preface since 2016, no, 2012 or 2016, one of those two years, no, 2012, we started training all the school districts here in Alice. And I was one of okay. the instructors. And Alice is a specific curriculum. It's um, its own entity. And that's really a great curriculum for schools designed with the idea of large schools, sprawling campuses, multiple exits. So Alice is great for that. 
Alice, okay? Yeah. And that, again, that's a specific separate organization. Often when I do the, these trainings, when I get the request for this train, and it's kind of an aggregate of Alice and then another train I went to, a train the trainer in Texas, an organization called Alert. Have you heard of Alert? I have heard of Alert, yes. Yeah, you're smiling. So you know the backstory. Alert's great, and it was um, identified by the FBI as the gold standard in active shooter training. So I went to that training and came back and learned from that also. And I use a lot more Alert in my training than any other source. That The reason I like their curriculum so much is it's data-driven. Alert's data-driven results have even changed how we train to respond to active shooters. So alert's been a really big part of my training. I even use a video in the, in the training um, called CRACE, the Civilian Response to Active Shooters. They use the term active attack, and that's also kind of synonymous with violent intruder. They're a little different. They don't make it gunfire specific. So an active attack can be someone driving a rider truck through a crowd. An active attack can be a knife. An active, an active attack can be a lot of things. So it's a little different definition. And one of the things, one of the things I, I like about them, they only look at events that law enforcement are aware of. And, and that changes things significantly. So it does two things. They take out events where law enforcement was never called, and they take out events that are not public. So someone who they use the term family annihilation of right. six people. That won't be included in their data because they want to improve law enforcement response, and we never get a chance to respond to those. It's just a little bit different way of looking at things, but that's a really important part of the training. So I kind of have an aggregate of Alice Alert and then my 27 years experience and 21 years on a tactical team to give what I would say is a condensed, no-nonsense, user-friendly training. Another difference is almost every business downtown, whether it's a bar or restaurant, has one entrance in the front and often one entrance in the back. And so we're talking, it's a whole different ball of wax compared to a school. So, and that kind of edits, that kind of changes how you do things too. And you did this on site, right? You, you've done this or you're going to yeah. continue to do yeah. this on so site. The first training was help, uh, Joe Riley helped organize that. And also a, co- a coworker of mine that works on the third shift who has a good relationship with all the bars. It's a third shift guy, and he's done a really good job, Officer Burma, of getting relationships with all the bar staff. He and Joe, I think, worked together to get everyone together, and all the doormen, the bar security staff, uh, they organized a meeting in a central big venue downtown, and we had a training with them. It takes about 45 minutes, and I have a 45-minute presentation, and that way they can all be on the same page. And that generates probably the best part about the training is the dialogue it generates. And we also, I sent them home with homework. I said, you know, go back to wherever you work and think about at 1.30 a.m., if gunshots ring out, where will you be where you work? And think about things like this. What avenues of egress do you have? Can you increase that anyway? Do your windows open? Is there a way up higher to get out of the building? A lot of our buildings downtown have roof access. Think about if someone starts shooting in your establishment, can you hear it? Is your music too loud that you can't even hear it? And more importantly, can you communicate with your coworkers in the back of the venue that can't hear the gunshots? So start thinking about things like that. So now some of the bars, the security staff have earpieces that, so they can actually hear each other. Because it's possible to have a shooting in a venue with loud music and the people in the back not know about it, or vice versa, people in the front not know about it. Weaponry came up last time, which always surprised me, but 
people are talking about should they arm themselves. That's kind of a sticky subject. And my views on that aren't necessarily those of the department, but I generally discourage that. There's a, a saying I heard, or maybe I made it up. If I made it up, I'm brilliant. But um, getting a gun makes you armed the same way buying a piano makes you a pianist. Right. So I don't know if that's, and I really think about that. People think if I just go buy a gun, I'm going to fix this. Well, you're not going to, if I buy a piano, I'm not going to be a pianist. So I think buying a gun is kind of the last resort for that. Um, unless you're really, really putting the time to train. I'm a firearms instructor. And let me tell you, it's hard to train people to shoot effectively when they're scared. So that's not my first choice. Generally, our, my training focuses on just like other, like all the stuff, Alice, and get out if you can. And if you can't get out, fight. This was an initiative that I answered a request for. We were getting lots of requests for training like this. So we've had a, everyone reads the news and they see this stuff happen all over the country and it's scared, you know, gives them some apprehension. We've had a handful of incidents here in Iowa City. The incidents we have in Iowa City are unplanned events. And we have video from the bars when it happens. It's usually people who have a fight in the bar, then go outside and someone starts shooting at somebody else. So we've had a handful of those here in Iowa City. And then that made the businesses ask us for training, which I was already, by coincidence, making the curriculum anyway. And it was just a good time. And they asked for it and I was making it. It's, it was well, it's been well received so far. All right. Now, I'm going to go back to your the sock place, the, uh, <laughs> your homelessness interaction. There are a lot of, um, I don't believe any city in the States is doing is managing homelessness well in their central business district. I just don't, especially as it addresses to creating um, the issue of discomfort among people who go downtown and that kind of thing. How are you addressing homelessness in the downtown district as part of your role? I mean, other than establishing these relationships. Well, we are fortunate and we might be the only city you've seen that's actually doing a good job managing it. And it's not, it's not something I can take credit for. I can, I helped with it and my predecessor helped with it also. We have been so fortunate. My, my predecessor, Dave Schwent, um, was involved in, um, an Obama initiative and, and also data-driven justice. And he worked with city officials to get funding for a permanent long-term housing for local homeless. And I wish I could tell you more about it. I may actually even refer you to Dave at some point. But the long story short is we built in this community 24 bed apartment complex, no barrier, for the local homeless. And we were able to use data that Officer Schwint got to find out the highest utilizers of local resources. And in other words, people that were using the most resources for ambulance, emergency room, police, corrections, all those things. And once we identified those people, and this was really remarkable to do because we had to do a lot of de-siloization of information, which is difficult. Yes. All those entities had lots of information on the same individuals and silos and no one was sharing. They managed to work together and get funding for this, this apartment complex. 24 of the highest utilizers of, and also the, the most, not just the highest utilizers, the most at risk also, are now permanently housed and there's no barrier. You don't have to go to treatment. You don't have to do this, that. We just got them housed. And I wasn't prepared to talk about this um, otherwise, I would have had the numbers. It was an, 
an astronomical amount of savings. So people that we would see in the downtown district that I deal with two and three times in a shift, they take two ambulance rides a day and all this stuff, this completely, you know, not a great use of our resources are housed and they went from, we, we don't see them anymore. They're just gone. And that's not, and I don't mean it in a, you know, in a good riddance way. I mean, who knew that the cure for homelessness is homes? If you ask a child, how do you, what's the cure for homelessness? They'd say home. You ask an adult and they go into a long diatribe of all the, you know, interconnected modalities and why it's not going to work. But we did that. And then we built, here's what's going to blow your mind. We built a second one. I think it's a 36 bed unit. And so the downtown district has been the greatest beneficiary of that. Like any big city, the reason there's a homeless interaction in the downtown districts is because they're, it's a small footprint and they're competing for the same dollars as the businesses. Anyone who wants, a lot of these people make their money by panhandling and that's the best place to panhandle. And panhandling is protected speech. You can't, the Supreme Court ruled on that. So you have this sometimes conflict of business owners trying to make money in their, in their nice stores and then homeless people trying to make money panhandling in the same small footprint. And that's where the conflict starts. Having these apartment complexes open almost reduce that to nothing right now. I don't want to jinx myself because right now we're in a really good spot and the cold has some to do with that. I'm not getting called down there three and four times a shift to deal with a homeless versus business owner actually. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that we have some amazing um, organizations here. That we have a homeless shelter here, shelter house. And one of the, one of the things they do is they have homeless outreach personnel. So when I do encounter someone in the downtown that's homeless, I can now call homeless outreach and they will dispatch someone right to where I am. I'll make a warm handoff with homeless outreach and they will start right away connecting that person with services. And it's, it's a, it's a great option to have. I don't, I'm not stuck holding the bag on how do I fix this? They come to the scene, they'll give them a ride and they'll get them into the, into the shelter system here. It's, okay. it's a great resource to have. I'd be remiss okay. if I didn't. So that and that partnership is good. The relationship between yep. the, the police department and the homeless services organizations. Because I'm speaking with uh, Officer Colin Fowler. He's the downtown liaison officer for the Iowa City Police Department. You can learn more about the Iowa City Police Department through their Facebook page and on the iowacitygovernment.org uh, website. Also, the Iowa City Downtown District is downtowniowacity.com. And uh, if you would like to find out more about them, they're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, my last question of you, Colin, it, what can other cities of all sizes take from the Iowa City model that they could forge a different kind of dynamic when it comes to this relationship between public safety, the public, and the private sector in nighttime spaces? That's a difficult question. <laughs> That's a difficult question. Yeah, there, there has to be something that you all are doing that could be replicated by cities of larger size. That was the reason why I wanted to bring attention to Iowa City. And yeah. what is it? Is it the fact that you're out of a car? I think it's you just have to have the initiative to do it. It's a commitment that a lot of people can't make right now due to manpower. But you have to make the commitment and you have to have people that want to do it. It's a different kind of work. It's what I do isn't exactly what everyone signs up to do when they want to become a police officer. I find it very fulfilling. So you have to have people that are willing to do it, that take it seriously. I'm not, I don't have empathy fatigue yet. So you have to have someone that wants to do it, willing to do it and do it. And it, it's gonna, it does cost you. I'm one less officer in a car, 
But if you can make that commitment and make those relationships, the dividends are well worth it. It's, it's, it's a great thing to have, to be able to have the relationships where someone from the downtown can call me and I go fix a problem and no one has to get arrested and it's just a great outcome. Don't get me wrong, some people have to go to jail, but it's a great system to have in place where there's the mutual trust and experience. I've been around here for 25 years, so people know me. So there's that mutual trust. They know I'm going to handle it the way they want it to be handled. Officer Fowler's reference to empathy did not escape me. This has been Season 2, Episode 10 of 24 Minutes from 24-Hour Nation. Visit us at 24hournation.com and follow us on social media at 24 Hour Nation. My name is Randall White.